How many pages could a court page page if all those pages were read? everybody, it is Saturday, September 20th, 2014, and this is Red Pages Podcast. I am Justin, and I am a whole bag of chips. I am Gord, and I am two-thirds of a bag of chips. I'm Paul, and I am a single scone. And we have a guest this week, special guest. Would you like to introduce yourselves to the listeners? Hey, I'm David Serlin. I don't have any kind of snappy bag of chips thing, though. <laughs> he never tells us in good. advance. <laughs> yeah, no, I just make those up on the fly, so nobody nobody but me ever has one. That's why there's always, like, a weird, awkward pause uh, between me and whoever decides to jump in after me. So, guys, how how have you been? How, have you, how are you doing this fine Saturday evening? Anything, uh, anything interesting happened to you in the past week that you really are dying to talk about? Have you watched any cool movies or been to any cool... Uh, places. Hang on, I can't remember. Or did you just work? Because that's what Paul always says. Oh, I actually I did something. Well, I, I mean, the reason... Okay, Paul, if you did something, go for it. Did you, uh, oh, did you get, did you get abducted by that cult again? No, I managed to avoid it. Uh, <laughs> but this week, or rather today, which is why I'm, like, slightly late, is I played uh, in a Magic the Gathering pre-release for Contest Arc here. Um, I did poorly. Oh, well. Oh, what, you sent me a text saying you were doing really well. I was doing well at the time. And then it, my my luck just went just plummeted as soon as I made uh, said that. You you shouldn't have said. I, I should not have said any <laughs> said anything at all. All right. Um. Well, there's there's your lesson for you, I guess. Yeah. Um. Don't fly too close to the sun. Yeah. Don't uh, fry bacon naked. There you go. That too. Gord, what about you? Uh Hmm. I didn't climb a mountain. Uh, I guess I guess uh, this this the thing that I have in the document is better off in the game section. But yes, uh, yes, it is. All right. Well then, nothing. <laughs> all right, uh, David. Do you have do you have anything you want to talk about? Uh, well, the main thing I I did was uh, relaunch my new website, Serlin.net. I'd spent like a couple months uh, rewriting every article and completely changing the graphic design, and I finally launched it this week. So uh, Ooh, it is different from the last time I was here. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot the, different. Uh, the side by side. Yeah. It's uh it's much uh cleaner, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, when I made uh, the game Pendente, uh, it has a very different graphic design look than the other games I've worked on and I kind of went with that same uh minimal elegant clean design for the new website. I think uh as as websites have become busier and busier, clean website design has become more and more appreciated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's like a feature creep of adding. Wait, but how am I supposed to tell like what time it is if it's not trailing my mouse pointer? And like, <laughs> what if I want to listen to music while on your website too? I mean, this, these are very important. Yeah. What if What if I don't want to click anything? Why isn't there infinite scroll? <laughs> another Another problem Another problem you might have on my website is you might want to know where the current events are, and there's no videos playing that tell you about you know what's happening in Somalia or something like that. 
<laughs> Auto-playing <laughs> videos? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, man. I guess you just have to go to CNN for that sort of thing. Uh, Burn. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> All right, so uh, I guess I'll talk. I actually, uh, I actually had experienced some media this week. Uh, I watched the the new the new Netflix original series that debuted this week, which is unusual given how little television I watch. But uh, I actually watch a I, ton of television. <laughs> <laughs> Did you watch anything that is that, like you'd, you'd like to call out as interesting recommendations? Oh well, I wouldn't want to interrupt what you were about to say. So you. All right. Well, after after I yeah. after I go, you can you can talk about it. But I watched uh, I watched their new series, BoJack Horseman, which mm, uh, I want to watch that. Yeah, I so I saw an advertisement for it in a magazine. I think it was um, I don't know. I think it was in like the Game Informer that I get in the mail every month as a result of discount cards. But um, I I looked at the ad and I thought, huh, this looks awful, but the blurb on this advertisement makes it sound like it might have potential, and so I decided to watch the first episode and it was it was just awful. But the way that the episode was composed gave me hope that there might be something there, despite all evidence to the contrary. So I watched the second episode and then the rest of the series was great, and the first episode was just kind of awful. Um, it is a show about a horse who, so in, in the world of this show, humans and animals just live together and have relationships and that's just normal. Like all animals are anthropomorphized. Um, they're just people with an animal head, basically. Uh, so this movie is, or this, this show is set in ancient Egypt, I guess. Um, no, but, but actually it's, it's set in Hollywood in the modern day and this guy, Bojack Horseman is a celebrity who was on this incredibly wildly popular television show in the 90s, and he sort of hasn't done anything since then. Also, he's a horseman. Yes, he is also a horse. (laughs) And it's him sort of dealing with depression and loneliness, and as he gets older, the lack of continued relevance within the culture, and trying to feel like he is still important, and how, how do you have and maintain relationships and sort of the the emptiness of what it's like to be both famous and alone at the same time. And so it's it's actually really thoughtful, more so as it goes. Um it, it it's ostensibly a comedy, but it's also sort of really unflinching in the way that it looks at people with serious depression. Hmm. Um So yeah, I would I would recommend it. Uh it sort of bounces between the dumbest joke you've ever heard and then a really, really long monologue about sort of feminist approach to culture in celebrities and sort of young women. So I, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it, but I enjoyed it. Uh, the second thing I watched was uh, much shorter, and it is a short film called The Facts in the Case of Mr. Hollow. And it is a six-minute short film that's just on YouTube. You can find it. But it is interesting artistically because it is a entire story told through a single photograph, and they just zoom in and zoom out of different parts of the photograph <laughs> and do some cool sort of... The photograph subtly changes as it goes when the thing that they're changing is not actively being shown. But it never changes enough that you're sure when you're watching it, was that like that before, or has it subtly changed? Um, and I can put a link to that in the show notes. It's, uh, it was, I wouldn't say, like, it's a great story, but it is an interesting sort of implementation of an idea. 
Was it animated or what? N- no, so it. I, mean, I guess it live kind action. Of, <laughs> it was so. It it starts out with a bunch of like it shows you. It's very Lovecraft in a way. It shows you like a bunch of papers that are on a desk, I guess, and what and it zooms in on one of them and is like history of mythology from Greece and Rome. And then there's a picture of like a a, a caduceus that someone has drawn in. And then it zooms in on a newspaper headline like cult activity high in in Ontario. And then it zooms in on a letter that says, here is the photograph. Look at it carefully with a name at the bottom of the letter, I guess. And I don't, it's not relevant what that was. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the video is just zooming in and out on parts of the photograph and it is an actual photograph of actual people i see like it is not animated but i guess they i guess it is composited from many different subtly different photographs that they then cut together to look like it was just the same photograph over time mm-hmm. um it's it sounds really complicated but if you watch it it is instantly obvious what's going on in terms of how they're doing it so um, I can put a link. I can put a link to it in the show notes and and in the chat if you want to watch it at some point. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, and then I also watched Twelve Angry Men, which I had seen before, but not since like middle school. Twelve Angry uh, Men is my favorite film. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Sweet. Let's talk about Twelve Angry Men. Uh, <laughs> Who cares about video games? Well, the the nineteen fifty four or fifty seven version or something. Fifty seven version. Fifty seven. Yeah. yeah the, that was the the black and white one. Yeah. There's a remake by Showtime. Uh, I don't know. Did you see that one? I did not see that one. I decided that it was a bad idea. <laughs> maybe it was. Maybe it ended up being good, but I, I used my judgment of how remakes usually happen. Well, why don't I tell you something about that remake? <laughs> okay, yeah, go for it. Uh, you're not gonna. I've seen the original. You're not gonna. Spoil I, I don't have before. to worry about spoilers, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, like j- juror number one, I think it was. He's kind of like a pipsqueak sort of guy. Uh, yeah. I, I felt he was the kind of poorest developed character in the original one. Uh, and the remake did a, a better job on just making him a more interesting character. So I'll give him a uh, thumbs up for that. Uh, but here is the super bizarre thing. Uh, the, the, the the juror who was the last one to hold out, the last one to change his mind. Yeah, the executioner. Mm-hmm. He's, a, he's like a bigot, you know, uh, a kind of racist sort of guy. And yeah, not as, not as racist as the, the guy who was just a racist, but... Yeah. Oh well, are we talking about the same guy? I mean, the guy who... in the original there was a guy. There was a guy who was a racist, and they like kicked him out. Oh, that's who I'm talking about. That guy. Okay, that guy. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I may have misspoke there. I, I mean, the guy who's super racist. So the, in the remake, uh, that guy, that character, he's racist against black people, and he is a black person. Huh. And it's like a very daring choice, and I don't really know if that panned out. It's just kind of weird and bizarre. <laughs> yeah, I was actually, as I was watching it this time, I was thinking about how at once, like, this is positioning, its, it positions itself as a progressive movie, because, like, even though they never tell you the race of the accused, it is pretty clear that, like, that's what they're trying to go with. Like, it is probably a black person. Uh, I, got the, uh, I thought it was maybe, maybe a Hispanic person or something in the original Maybe. The original it is one? a person, of, it's a person of color. Mm-hmm. It is not a white person. Right, it right. Is, and... And all of the jurors in the original are white, even the immigrant. Mm-hmm. He's he's like from Europe, Europe, Eastern Europe or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I was I was thinking like, well, at, at, like this is at once like progressive because they're saying like, look, prejudice is bad. We can't base our judgment on the, whether we hate people of other races. 
but at the same time, sort of like the gatekeepers to justice are all still white people. So I'm in- that's a really interesting choice to make to make that character a black person in the remake. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'll ha- maybe I will watch it. I mean, at the end, I, what I was trying to communicate to you is that there's maybe five percent of the remake that's better, and then the rest, okay. the rest kind of isn't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Well. Okay, maybe I'll watch five uh, percent. <laughs> sure, but I just I really like the uh, original movie. Um, just yeah, you know, the whole it process. Such of... like a, yeah, it's such like an excellent idealized vision of what the justice system is supposed to be. Yeah, that's like that's like our fantasy is we wish that that was happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I I hope some, uh, but. I guess more and more as we find out that just the prisons are filled with people who are innocent that are now getting equipped from acquitted from a DNA testing. Yeah. That uh, clearly this is not the case. All right. So so what what TV show did you want to talk about? Oh, I don't know. I've I watch like I said I watch a, a lot of TV shows uh, partly because I do a lot of work in Photoshop and I'm able to watch TV while I do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, have, have you watched anything so, spectacularly outstanding? I mean, here I just rattle things off. Like, uh, okay, Game of Thrones is great. Everyone loves that. Breaking Bad, uh, House of Cards, season two mm. is really mm. good. Um, here's something probably no one's heard of. A Chosen. It's like a random show on Crackle. Uh, I've never heard of it. Yeah, I have no clue what a Crackle is. Yeah, see, it's uh, you don't even know what it's on, much less like it's a it's a white person, right? A crackle is a white person. I think I've heard that that used before. I think that's cracker, crack, crackle, some kind of network or something that has. Yeah, I don't know. They're like no, 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 they no, no, no. A, cra- a crackle is that weird kind of uh, laugh that people do when they're evil. No, isn't oh. it? It's not a Pokemon. I'm pretty sure it's a Pokemon. <laughs> no, I think it's like a type of candy bar. <laughs> the uh, the premise the premise of that show chosen is that uh, someone gives you a box and it tells you who oh. you have to who you have to kill uh, within, like, 48 hours or something, and they just totally kill you or whatever if you don't do it. And so it's like people are trapped into playing this horrible game. Uh, oh, it's kind of, it, yeah, it's kind of like low. Chosen with Zed, which is about some gangster who comes out of prison and is a cartoon. Huh. <laughs> Probably a different uh, chosen. Uh, <laughs> uh, Homeland, uh, Blacklist. I also like a kind of show I don't have to really pay attention to, uh, which is anything with Gordon Ramsay. I love Gordon Ramsay, so like Master Chef or oh, Kitchen Nightmare. Great. I really I can relate to him because he's just constantly upset that people don't have high enough standards and like why why is it okay that to these people they're doing a terrible job and I I relate to that. <laughs> the story of my life. Uh, oh wait, no, I know. Uh, I chose a uh, wait, it was a crackle. No, never mind. I lost it. Too Keep late. Going. Too late for that joke. <laughs> I was gonna say. I was gonna say a, cho- a chosen. A chosen is the the bird thing from Metroid. Ah. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Um. Right. Well, that's 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 a good. Uh, that's a good. What have we been doing? Segment. I think. Let's uh. Let's let's transition through the power of the noise that I will ed- hear in editing. Books, 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 things that you read with your eyes, or if you're me, that you listen to on tape. Um, does anybody have a book that they are dying to talk about? Deafening silence. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I could talk about Foundation. You, you talked about that for the past three weeks. <laughs> I don't think that's true. 
We've talked about, like, the series for the past three weeks. Or is this a different foundation series? The one by Isaac Nismo? Didn't you talk about that last week? I think I was still talking about uh, the Jupiter novels. Oh, right. Yes, a different science fiction. (laughs) Okay. Proceed. All right. Foundation is... You could probably say that it's a uh, foundation of modern science fiction. Um, It's a a series that spanned something like 40 years, I think, uh, because his publisher just wouldn't let him go on it. Also, at the beginning, he promised a thousand years to be covered in the uh, the book series, and then the first one covers the first forty years, and then he said, like, "Yep, that's good. I'm done. Satisfied." <laughs> and then, like thirty years later, thirty real years later, uh, or something, uh, his publisher said, "Hey, so uh, we're going to give you this crazy sum of money up front, uh, and you are going to work on nothing except for the sequel to that book." And he said, well, you're going to lose a lot of money because nobody's going to buy this book except for most everyone in the world. Uh, it's, it's about uh, this vast empire that spans the entire galaxy uh, far in the future that has survived and thrived and uh, done a whole lot of good and uh, in bringing order into the entire galaxy. Uh, for tens of thousands of years. Uh, but there's this one dude who stands up and says that, uh, according to this new system of math that he invented, the empire is going to die and there is going to be 300,000 years of anarchy and chaos. And the only solution is to have, uh, all of the top minds of the empire, uh, be exiled, essentially, to this one tiny planet uh, that has no natural resources on the far end of the galaxy. And uh, then the the Empire collapses in on itself because it's just top-heavy and is no longer concerned about uh, running a galaxy so much because of the way that politics work. Uh, and then the rest of the series is about... This, uh, this this planet and these scholars um, they are called the foundation and uh, then from there on it jumps from uh, it sort of leaps from uh, uh, point to point uh, down through family lines and stuff and uh, deals with all of these different crises that occur and how people deal with them uh, but the uh, the system of math uh, laid out by that first dude only deals with mass populations and not individuals. Uh, so a bit of it is them fighting against their destiny uh, as laid out by this dude who uh, put them into such a situation that for most points in history they don't actually have a choice. Uh, because, for example, if they had responded with a military system uh, the first time they were threatened, then everyone else in their sector would have been threatened by them and wiped them out. So that was the reason that they are on a planet with no metals to speak of. Um, and there are uh, a bunch of really fascinating discussions. Mm, there isn't a lot of action. Most of it is just people in a room talking uh, about the things that are going on. But it's still really compelling and uh, 
the series goes back a long way. Do you find that the that's okay? I, I, this this word you got to take it with a grain of salt. But <laughs> do you find that it's believable now? Uh, what I mean by that is like. I don't mean if the situation is too fantastical or ridiculous, but but the, the portrayal of technology um, when Asimov wrote it compared to now, like that, does it seem silly and antiquated, or totally fine and good? Or well, uh, it is interesting that everyone smokes. <laughs> everyone is just always smoking cigarettes, cigarettes and cigars. So that kind of sticks out as a little weird and anachronistic yeah. or something. Yeah. And uh, there are a bunch of yeah. There, there are also a bunch of things like uh, the way that space travel works, where you can jump through hyperspace or something, was probably something that was a lot more that, that stood out a lot more when he wrote them. That we just take for granted now. Like yeah, hyperspace. That like that right, yeah, of course, uh, travel faster than light. Yeah. Uh, everything everything is nuclear though. Like all of technology is is, is nuclear. Basically, what happened was. Uh, uh, n- Everything is a nuclear generator. Like your your watch has a tiny little nuclear generator in it that will just continue powering for all of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that and I think, hmm, that might be because n- nuclear power was the future then. I don't know. I think I guess I feel like we've got different ideas on that now. Uh, your question reminds me of uh, the Fallout universe, which I think is really fantastic and uh, anachronistic because it's based on, like, the future they thought was going to happen back in the 60s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there are – every car is a, a nuclear reactor in the you know, under the hood. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, that was Foundation. Justin, what did you read? Um. So, I mean, uh, I, I continued my – Slow, slow march through, uh, through that that book that I've been reading that I'm not blanking on. Uh, Gone with the Wind, which I, I um, because I only listen to it while I'm at work. Uh, I, I'm just gonna probably say that as a preface to what I read for the next year. <laughs> but uh, the the book that I that I started and I'm moving through this week is uh, a, a a famous novel by a famous author. And so, in preparation, and by pre- I mean, I guess I had started reading it, but I was not far in. I, I went out and I bought a box of Madeleines because I am reading Du Côté de Chez Swan, or uh, Swan's Way by Marcel Proust, the the first in his, uh, what is it, five, seven, seven volume uh, work, The Remembrance of Things Past. Um, sort of his meditation on memory and aging and involuntary memory and it's uh, I I don't know where to sort of begin talking about it because one because I don't know how familiar any of you are with it so I don't know what I should be talk about and what not so do do any of you know anything about no. I'm going to tell you I'm going to say the <laughs> only thing the only thing I know about it which is that uh, a girl in my high school class we were all supposed to read a book and do a report on it and she chose the series Remembrance of Things Past which is an insane crazy <laughs> choice it is yeah. the most Yeah I think the audiobook is like fu- actually 500 <laughs> wow. Yeah it, yeah how many so how many pages would you estimate to Oh jeez! I mean, like, I mean, more than a thousand, right? It's it's like it's like four thousand. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. 
so all I know is that she chose that, and that when she gave her report, she looked like a person who had read 4,000 pages and was just, like, exhausted and wanted to go to sleep and didn't know where to begin to even summarize it. <laughs> I would also say that this is not a book that a person in high school should be reading. Like, not that they won't understand it, but that they they just, like, won't have the the life experience to really get out of it what he's trying to do. That could be true. I don't know. I mean, you're the one who's read it. But you're, yeah, well, no, I, I mean, I for you to judge that girl, for that poor girl who read 4,000 pages. No, I'm impressed that she got through it. She'll, she'll get more out of it on the reread. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things well, you, you come back a, to every year, you know. Yeah, yeah well, I, had a, I had a professor that uh, in college that said that reading is rereading, and so that you should always reread bec- uh, if you want to properly understand what you've read. So... Hmm. I, I fully expect to be rereading this in 50 years, I guess. But yeah, just the when you're in high school, you haven't lived enough to really have a lot of memories, and thus a lot of involuntary memory triggers. Like that's just. Well, what I, is it, I, I mean, is it like really philosophical, or is it like a story with a plot and characters, or what? What is it? Um. So I'm I'm still in volume one. So take take this with a grain of salt. All I know, all the volumes are different. Mm-hmm. But it's the the first book is divided into four smaller books, and they're sort of they're not literally about Proust; they're about his fictional narrator. But his fictional narrator is like a version of himself who has many of the same specific life experiences that he has tweaked slightly to be better as part of a novel. And so he he writes about his youth and his adulthood and how do when he's an adult doing things suddenly involuntarily bring back this rush of memories that he had completely forgotten but that he because he had association so the the, the most famous one is he's eating a madeleine which is a, a delicious buttery french cake um and he dips it in his tea and takes a bite and he is suddenly swept back to when he was young in his parents house and they had this visitor over and the memory just completely overwhelms him because like uh, it came out of nowhere, and he, he has such strong emotional resonances with what happened. And then there's... So the the title of the book, Swan Swan's Way, which uh, makes a lot more sense in French, which is... You, you could translate it as, like, Swan's Path, because the, the town that he lived in, there were two ways to take a walk, and one way was in the direction of Mr. Swan's house. And so it is, you know, which way are we going to go? We'll go Swan's Way. Um, and Mr. Swan is sort of the central character of the first book. He is a visitor in their house when he is young. One of the quarters of the book is about his life, sort of, and him as a young man and him getting married. It's, I know, it's it's really hard for me to sub, sort of sum up this, this work in a sort of pithy statement. So, but it is, it is everywhere in our culture. Like, it is so highly ingrained into the thinking of sort of the 20th century and especially the literature that I sort of felt like I was doing myself a disservice not to be familiar with it. Mm. So that's why I'm reading it. And I guess I'll be reading it for another 4,000 pages. I don't know if you're able to answer this, but do you like it? (laughs) Yes. No, I absolutely do. The, even uh, because my French is awful, um, I'm reading, I did I did research on sort of which translations were the best and I got the best translation but even in translation the 
some of the phrasings are just so beautifully put. Yeah, he, I'm sorry, you just reminded me of something. I have to tell you, the high school, the okay. high school girl, she read it in French. Okay, well, <laughs> I mean that's not a problem if you speak. French. No, it it, it <laughs> isn't. But you know, I mean, I guess you you should, right? If you speak French, of course you should. Yeah, I mean, you should always strive to read something in the original if you can. Unless you're unless you're looking specifically at translations, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so I had a that you reminded me. I had a a student when I was uh, teaching a summer program from Russia, and I talked was talking with him about literature, and he was like, "Yeah, I like your American authors and your American sort of great great works, but they're just not as good as the Russian <laughs> ones. <laughs> the 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 Russian ones are just a little more serious." And I I, I was describing the situation to somebody else. And they were like, well, yeah, there's a lot of misery over in Russia. You know, misery makes good art. Well, I, so, I, I do not disagree with that statement. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's cold and people are hungry in a way that they are not in America. So, especially a hundred years ago. Mm. Anyway, yeah, I like I would unequivocally recommend this book to somebody who is interested in sort of works of classic literature. But uh, it is not a task you take on lightly, given its sort of length. And his sentences are not, they're not Hemingway. He takes exactly as long to say what he's saying as he needs to. And sometimes that is quite long indeed. Mm. And he doesn't, he doesn't break up his sentences into smaller sentences. They just sort of go on with a whole bunch of different clauses that are dependent on other clauses and digressions within the middle of a sentence. And that allows for a really, really excellent flow of ideas and sort of a poetical quality to some of his writing. But you really have to be paying attention or you can get lost in the writing. And just you'll get to the end of a sentence and have no idea where you began. Hmm. So, yep. French. French modernists. Um, Man, who named that era? Paul, Paul, the, it was modern <laughs> at the time, I guess. <laughs> Sounds like I have a much different slant on books since uh, I haven't read a fiction book in, since I can remember. <laughs> I read like nonfiction yeah. psychology books mostly. Yeah. Well. Oh. So we we uh, I think psychology is is on, is on our bad list. Our rival podcast is uh, a psych- <laughs> done by psychologists. Oh yeah. You guys have a, out of you have a rival podcast. Yeah, we have. We have yeah we have we have a rivalry with a uh, with another podcast. I guess we won that rivalry, so, uh, didn't we? Yeah, I, get, I mean, uh, they, we do Mortal they, with them eventually. Yeah, we haven't, we haven't, we're we're currently working out a, a somehow duel to the death over the internet via a game that we can both play to settle this once and for Why all. Why don't you trash talk but, a little? Uh, what, why don't you like? Are they not good enough quality? Are they idiots? Or are they what's what's wrong with them? No, they're they're, no, they're, they're, they're psychologists. Uh, intelligent people. <laughs> yeah. They're psychologists from Oxford, so yeah, they're pretty smart. <laughs> okay, so they, yeah, they they know a few things. <laughs> yeah, but um, they're boring. Maybe is that the problem? No, I've listened to all of their episodes. Oh, you're like um, too often. You're like we're, well, we're their biggest to... fans, but also our rivals. <laughs> I don't remember how. I don't even remember how this how this rivalry started. I think it you was you shouted them out one time. I think. Yeah, I like I I like recommended their podcast on our show, and then <laughs> nice some, rival <laughs> through. <laughs> Through some, like, miscommunication, they, like, fired back at us or something, or they, like, they, they called out our podcast as something to listen to, and then Bastard. I don't know how this relationship, uh, yeah, I don't know exactly how this relationship degraded, 
But, it but uh, suddenly it, <laughs> it, it, it like became deadly serious duels. They chose. Apparently, they've been training for months <laughs> to defeat us. They chose the Pokemon that ours was weak to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, was that it? Yeah. Just from then on. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> it's it's sort of like the Arab-Israeli conflict. Nobody knows how it began, but it has escalated to sort of a, a, a point where there is no return. Yeah, because no, I I knew I knew one of those guys like before either of us started this podcast, our our respective podcasts, and like I got a like I remember when he started, he was like, "Hey, I'm I'm about to start a podcast," and I was like, "Cool, I'll listen to it," and then uh, uh, I don't know. I haven't talked to him a lot since then. <laughs> yeah. So uh, may- maybe someday we'll we'll figure out how how we're going to have our showdown. But yeah, I think we won the 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 battle, if not the war, because their podcast is on hiatus and ours is not. I'm imagining <laughs> that you win it by doing an episode about psychology, and that yours is like way more interesting than theirs. <laughs> yeah, that's that. Well, that's the that's the the terms. The lo- whatever, whatever we figure out what our competition is, the losers have to be guests on the winners' podcast. <laughs> so it's either going to be them really talking about <laughs> yeah, it's either th- going to be them having to talk about video games, which I'm oh sure God. they can do, or us having to like talk about clinical psychology, which we're way not very good at. Uh, Underqualified is an understatement. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> I don't know how we got on this. Oh, I said because. Uh, all right, because you said you read psychology. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. yeah. If if you like psychology, you should check out the Psychomedia podcast. <laughs> Available at psychomediapodcast.wordpress.com. Thanks, thanks for the recommendation. Check that out. <laughs> yeah, but don't enjoy it too much. Yeah, don't yeah. enjoy it. That's Be true. like a little miserable while I'm listening to it. Yeah, um, I'm trying. Yeah, uh, so be- because uh, I am uh, a, a scholar in English, I do end up reading a lot of uh, a lot of stuff that is ostensibly fiction. Although some people, I guess, would claim that fiction is truer than any fact you'll read in a in a book. I like that Will Ferrell movie. I did see that movie. <laughs> you, you're talking about something I know about. Oh, sweet. Cool. Um, I yeah, I saw that movie, and then uh, I was with a friend, and I walked out, and she was like, so the protagonist of that movie was like a wristwatch, right? <laughs> <laughs> so... So do you, do, you have a, uh, do you have a particularly good psychology book that you would recommend? Um... Well, so the two uh, kind of subfields that I enjoy are the study of happiness and also the study of how experts make decisions. Um, let's see. As far uh, for the the study of happiness, I can. There's several books I could recommend, but there's one that it's way more entertaining than the other ones. So maybe I should say that one. The most entertaining book about happiness I know of is called The Geography of Bliss. And I think I've heard of that. I think it was written by the perfect person to write that book. It's written by not a person who's happy, a person who's kind of miserable. And he's miserable because he's a news correspondent who covered the most horrific, terrible things in the world. So you can imagine how that would be kind of a drag after a while. But it also means he's a really good writer. So what he decided to do was go to was to find the list of uh, the happiest countries in the world uh, as um, – compiled by scientists of the subject, and go visit them and tell us what they're all like and how they differ from each other and how they differ from our country. Uh, but I really enjoy that we get to see it through the eyes of a, of a kind of a grumpy guy. <laughs> it's, it's like, I don't know, it's, it's something perfect about it. 
Okay, so he was a he was an NPR guy. That's probably why I've heard of it because I listen to a lot of NPR. Mm, yeah, you might have heard of it. Um, I guess the pop culture book on the other subject the, about making decisions that everyone probably knows is Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Have you heard of that? I've heard of Malcolm Gladwell, but I don't know that particular oh, okay. book. So yeah, Blink is a, about the concept of uh, how an expert can make a judgment instantly that's extremely high quality. Uh, and uh, like, kind of when you look at really closely at cases of that, it's baffling at how how good these decisions can be. Like, um, the experts can't even tell you how they know what they know, but they instantly know it. And he c- compares many examples where uh, experts instantly knew a thing that other people might spend months and months analyzing and not be able to get to the answer. And so why is that? And how, how are they tapping into this intuition? Uh, I, I, Gladwell gets a lot of flack, I think, but I do like that book because I think it's, um, it's easy to understand, it's easy to read, and it's kind of an intro to that whole subject. He's referencing a whole bunch of other books, and if you're interested in that field, like that's a good starting point because you could read his source material next. Yeah, I mean, he's he's definitely, like, a super smart guy and has earned his, his chops, even if you don't agree with what he writes. Like, I respect him, certainly. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, Paul, I think you're the only one who hasn't talked yet. Uh, that's for good reason. I honestly have not had the time to really read. Oh, boo. Yeah, I know, I know. Boo, Sean. I, I feel worse if I wasn't so busy with work. Okay. Maybe we should move right. on to games then? Or? Yeah, let's move on to games. Oh, man, it's so good to have somebody else say that. I feel like I've said <laughs> that for... What episode is this? 28 episodes straight. So do I win? I'm the first... That's, that's what you've yes, been looking yes. for. Yes, you get a special prize. <laughs> your, your, your prize is in the mail. It's all been like a big hunt to see who's the first one to say. <laughs> yep. yep. Let's move on to all games. Right. All right. Podcast is over now. Video games. <laughs> yep, yep, it's over. That was the, this is the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's talk about let's talk about video games. I know at least two of us played Wasteland Two. I did. I did which not. Came unfortunately. Out. Okay. Um. But I don't know if either of us played it enough to form more than very rudimentary impressions. Gore, did you? Play it at all past like the opening screen? I did not get past the. Uh, I've not yet explored beyond the first zone. Okay, have you played Fallout 1? Mm, yes, I died to a rat, and I restarted. Okay, I welcome, to welcome to this, the rat again. Welcome to this game. Well, welcome <laughs> to the conversation. Mm. Yeah, this, what difficulty this game, uh, whatever the not lowest one was, but the second to lowest. Okay, yeah, same here. The one that was like, if you've ever played a game like this before, you should probably start on this one. Mm. If this is not your first rodeo, choose this <laughs> difficulty. This is your second to fifth radio. Second or third rodeo, yeah. If this is your second radio. Yeah, um, it's it's just Fallout, I think. Oh, only this, like, the, the interface is modern. Mm-hmm. Like, I can actually control it easily. I had fun making, uh, uh, making characters. Yeah. I don't know if there's anything that I could say other than, like, if you've played Fallout or Wasteland 1, you kind of know what you're getting into. People funded this game based on getting more of the same, not a completely new product. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I I, uh, 
it's it's still brutally difficult in that uh I I I think it was the second fight of the game uh I was down to one enemy there were like five or six and I killed all of them except for one and I had a full surround on him with my entire party and it was just miss 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 until the enemy got enough turns to knock my medic unconscious which meant that he just bled out and died because I didn't have anybody else that could revive because you don't get enough skill points and it's a dumb choice to put more than one person as your medic because that's a waste of skill points so that it was just game over. Mm. So, the, yeah, that's the type of game it is. It is just like in the old days. <laughs> awesome. Um, I think that's the only thing I really played. I mean, I played uh, I, I played the sort of usual suspect of a games made by Blizzard like Hearthstone or whatever, but that's, they're not, that's not really of note. Um, Paul, you have a really long list of games here. I think this is it's last week's list. list. I don't think this is... Uh, okay. things okay. that I did. Um, I found out uh, that Monaco released a patch in which... Or, multiple patches in which they have an enhanced version of the game, which is just an easier... Uh, sort of easier version of the game. They applied like, different design philosophies to the base campaign, and it changed around a lot of things. And overall, the difficulty went down. Which is good, because there's legitimately some parts that were just the worst to try to get through. Uh, and they also added a uh, zombie mode, which I haven't played yet, but I want to. And as soon as <laughs> I find people to play with, I will be uh, zombieing up Monaco. Uh, I also started playing Guild Wars 2 again uh, because of the World vs. World Fall Tournament. Uh, not much to say there, except uh, my server continues to be number one. And awesome. Nice. Huh. Also, also right. uh, full disclaimer: by no, uh, by uh, no part of my by no yeah, of your yeah, own. So is that the case? No, I'm piggybacking off of thousands of other people's hard work, and I'm okay with that. Yeah. Let's say that that <laughs> there's there's only one of us who has ever put serious time into a player versus player MMO here, I, right? I, I, I don't know. Did you play a lot of it in WoW I back in the day? I didn't do a lot of uh, PvP in WoW. I, I had a legitimate arena team. We didn't do very well, but I played arena a lot for yeah. some reason. We were awful, but I still played I, a lot. I played a lot of arena, too. I ended up with a t- like earning a title at the end of the season, so I guess I was in like the top 30% or whatever, but yeah. I haven't played it in a while. Fair enough. Um, that was it for me. All right. Uh... Dave, do you wanna? Do, have you played a video games? I have. I played uh, Diablo three on PlayStation four. I bought a PlayStation four so that I would have it for Guilty Gear Xrd, which is a fighting game you may have never heard of, uh, but it comes out next month or two months or something. Uh, anyway, I played a lot of Diablo three. Do you know anything about that game? Uh no. None of us have ever played Diablo three. I think Diablo three. I, I actually have not. Is a yeah. Gord actually hasn't played yet. It's a great case study. I am not aware of any game ever that has the following property. When it was first released, it was universally hated. And if you look at the Metacritic score uh, right now, I think if you look today, it's something like three point nine. I believe it was like one point nine when it came out. And yet, the current version of the game is very highly rated. It's like above 8.0 and has a positive buzz. That's that's pretty hard to turn around. Like how yeah, Final Fantasy 13 has been trying at that for years. But but it, but <laughs> it has not succeeded at that, right? Well, it also hasn't changed <laughs> not even slightly. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, well, Diablo 3 is an entire new version of the game twice. Diablo 3 has changed an incredible amount. 
So that's why. It's... Yeah, Paul and I, Paul and I have actually been playing Diablo three since launch. So a lot of it, actually. It's yeah. Paul has played a lot, a lot of it. I have, I, I have six max level characters, and five of them are decent, or four of them are decently geared. It's bad. Yeah. So. I personally enjoyed Diablo 3 at launch and think it has just gotten better, so I'm the real winner here. <laughs> but uh, I know a lot of people hated it. Because you with the option has. Uh, sorry, but before I answer that, have you played the console version at all, or no? No, I... I actually got to play a demo didn't see of it. it. Yeah, I know Paul did, but I didn't, I, don't, I didn't see a reason to buy the game again when I already owned it, so... That's fair, yeah. I, I, uh, yeah. I really prefer the console version. I've played both, but... Uh, so but the question of the auction house... Um, yeah, it's a good question. I, here's what I here's what I think happened. Uh, so in Diablo 2, you could trade items with people, and mm-hmm. so that became like kind of more and more of a thing. And then there's like websites that pop up that help you trade items and sit, sit around yeah. and chat all the time and try to trade items. And so Blizzard looks at that and it's like several a couple problems there. That's a security problem. Like a lot of fraud happens. And yeah. And Blizzard's got to pay for it, and so they don't, you know, the, all the complaints and customer service, and they don't like doing that. Uh, second is uh, maybe they can get a piece of this action. Maybe there's a way for them to make money on that. Uh, and third, and more uh, kind of legitimate game design thing is like, well, if people want to trade items, maybe we should really help them. Maybe we should give them the best possible interface to do that ever. Uh and I think their intention was good there. It's like it's hard to say. Like how much of it was driven by number two of let's make a lot of money, and how much was driven by number three, <laughs> number three of like. I feel like if it were two that were really driving it, that they wouldn't have shut it down. I know, but I'm going back in time, like looking at the original yeah. intent, uh, yeah. where it was not really clear. I yeah. I thought it was a you know a mixture of both. I thought it was probably driven mostly by number three of let's do the right thing for players, and while we're at it, let's make a lot of money. Uh, so I think that was the thinking, but then, as we all know, I guess, uh, <laughs> how that turned out is that yeah. it, it's transformationally different. It's it's not like, if you take the old trading style and you made it, like, 5% more efficient, that's not what it's like. It's like the only thing you do is... A billion percent it, more Yeah, it, it's, like, so much more efficient that it overwhelms the entire game and all you ever do is look at spreadsheets <laughs> uh, and it's a horrible, miserable experience. Like I, w- right. I would, pl- like I played it for you know like twenty minutes or something, and then I've collected some items. A- and when I when I'm done and I'm about to log off, every time I'd have a horrible feeling because I'm like I have all this junk, but I can't just like sell it all because one of these things might be really valuable to someone of some other class if it had just the right stats. And now I have to know that. And like, should I? Is this worth like a million gold? Should I auction it for that? And it's all about just knowing which piece of thing will help someone and its value, and it's just so crappy. So it's mm. great that they uh, – it's surprising that they took it out, honestly. Like, I think that they couldn't have foreseen the impact right. that it was going to well, have. They also had the issue in which the game was uh, really kind of poorly balanced in the beginning, which led to a lot – like the uh, an over-exaggeration of how uh, the issues of the auction house. Mm-hmm. Because all of a sudden, uh, you had all this content that was kind of designed around people grinding a while, and then the auction house m- meant that uh, people who happened to get pretty lucky and make, like, uh, characters that they were had not anticipated they were making, and just, like, do really dumb farming runs because you could monetize it all of a sudden. It just created yeah. a weird environment for everybody. Yeah, I I do think that, they went, that their disabling of all trading was... Uh 
like, I think they threw the baby out with the bathwater a little bit. Yeah. Like, I think they went too far in the other direction when they removed all of that. Yeah, I, think it's, I think it's okay. I, I'm gonna, I would defend it, but uh, not to the point that I disagree with you yeah. so much. I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm okay yeah, with it. I'm not saying it's awful, but I think that they maybe have went a little yeah. too far. Could I think be. that trading... But like I under, like they they didn't want it to go back to the system that was in Diablo too. Yeah, so right. I, mean, it was I mean, in a lot, one or in the a lot other. of regards, I would consider like the whole reversal experience uh, kind of just a different game. If they had started from the beginning, like this was just a system that they had in place, I would have been fine with it. And like knowing that there was like this crazy trading auction house stuff before, kind of like taints your view on things. I I think like also Diablo two before the expansion wasn't a super fantastic game. Like, mm-hmm. the it, like the game that people fondly remember is the result of a huge number of patches and sort of a really extended patch cycle. Uh, so. I'll say another thing about Diablo that I uh, appreciate the design decision they made. Uh, so, somewhere in... It's inevitable that somewhere in this game there's going to be some run, some little, like, one-minute segment that's a little too efficient. Like, there's almost right. like no way to avoid that. And if you fixed it, there's going to be some other one somewhere. It's just there's always going like, to be a it's like an un, it's like an unstable system that you just you know there's going to be no matter what. And they did their best to solve a lot of those. As, that, that's good. But what I didn't really expect was a, a system wide way to address that problem to to like erase those problems. So so that even if they're there, they don't have to fix them anymore. And that's what the bounty system does. So I thought that was I thought that was very clever right. to say, here's five random missions, and we're going to tune that to be the most efficient thing for you to do. So you want to do a bunch of missions all over the place, even if there's one little one minute segment. Like the gains you get from that aren't as much as if you did all these bounties and rifts and so on. So yeah, I, th- I thought that was a good idea. Yeah, for sure. It, it, the rewards from the bounties are just going to outweigh whatever mm-hmm. particular run you think you're going to do. Um, yeah, and I don't know. I, but even back when people were hating on Diablo, I was like, yeah, it's it's a Blizzard game. Blizzard will make this a good game. They will just dump money into it until it is a fun thing, because that's what they do. So, like, I'm never too concerned about their products being bad. They've got the the talent and the money to just throw infinite resources at a problem, which is sort of <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have a friend who... Uh who liked the game a lot when it came out. He's a financial analyst. So it's kind of funny because he, mm-hmm. he's like the per- perfect person to look oh, at yeah. spreadsheets and, and stuff. And he made like tons of, tons of gold in the game and some real money. I, I made, I think, yeah, I think I made like, I don't know, 20 or 30 bucks off of the, the auction house real money in the end. So he was really liking so. it. And I said, Hey, uh, so do you think it's like a, a good game or a fun game or something? And his answer was, I think it's great, and maybe in a year, regular humans will be able to play it. <laughs> and then That's I look pretty I look, fantastic. I look back at that now. I'm like, wow, he was so much more right than I even realized at that moment. <laughs> so uh, Neil Stevenson wrote a book, uh, Reem D, uh, and in that, uh, a person. What, what is it? Forms coming. Uh, Reem D. Uh, it's it's Read Me, except with the the D and the M backwards. Oh, okay. Uh, this, this dude forms a company and builds an MMO, uh, in a fantasy setting, uh, in such a way that, hmm, 
people in poor countries could play the game and just gold farm uh, and grind up uh, gear and stuff and then sell those for real dollars to uh, to uh, rich people who have other jobs mm-hmm. uh, who, who just want to play the game and have fun. I think this already exists in World of Warcraft. <laughs> I was going to say yeah, it exists in yeah. online. Yeah, this explores that idea in like a, a, a legitimate setting. Like the, the reason he made the game was so this was a thing that could be could exist. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it exists now. This world is uh that that world also exists in Ready uh, Player cool. One in the book Ready Player One. Like almost all commerce is digital. People buying cool avatar stuff. Um, he uh, he did this so that he could launder a whole bunch of money through his uh, digital system of uh, trading in-game gold for real dollars. Oh, huh. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think that also happens. Yeah, there's a uh, I think Russian PF2 uh, laundering thing. Yeah, oh, I heard about that. Oh, yeah, man. I should, uh, I might, I might be able to get some ins with some of those people <laughs> through my hat baron connections. <laughs> we should get them on the podcast, right? Just mo- yeah, not mafiosos. Talking about and their being really good at literature. Scabs. <laughs> yeah. Um, Gord, why don't you continue to talk, only this time about what game you played. Uh, I've been playing a surprising amount of Civilization Five. I've gotten really into it. And I am regretting more and more that it didn't grab the uh, Civilization Humble Bundle when it was out. Uh, because I am missing Gods and Kings, and it is going for 30 bucks. And that, that's uh, a little more than I want, than I want to pay for a, uh, uh, you know, a game that I already have getting slightly significantly better. Uh, but, uh, last night I fired up this new UI. It's a mod. Uh, where is it? It is called the Enhanced User Interface, and it does a great deal of wonderful things that uh, basically I've been wishing for and wondering why they weren't just native in the game at launch. Uh, mouse hover data, like tooltip stuff, is actually informative. Uh, you can hover over a thing and see everything that you would normally have to go two or three menus deep to see. Um, clicking on a city brings you straight to production and overview mode instead of this weird halfway menu that exists solely so that you can click on the button that brings you to the production and uh, overview mode. Uh, all of your units show up as icons on the left uh, with... Uh, green circles indicating that they still have moves left this turn. Uh, and uh, for uh, they've also got little sub icons for what they are doing currently and for how many more turns they will be doing this. So uh, your uh, your workers will all show up as, uh, you know, this guy is building a plantation for the next three turns. This guy is sleeping for the next infinity turns. Uh, yeah. That's a lot of <laughs> Uh, the uh, all of the other civilizations and city-states show up as icons on the right side uh, with numbers for uh, gold going back and forth between you and them and resources. 
Uh, I think there it's even got uh, potential resources, like, uh, I don't know, I'll, I'll have to take a look at that again. All of the notifications that pop up toaster style on the right side are collapsed into like types. So every city-state message is just one button that you click on to cycle through, which is marvelous and fantastic. The, uh, the top bar has been split into two sides that, uh, uh, again, basically just present information, uh, in a very much, much simpler, uh, version. And, uh, if you mouse over things like happiness, it, uh, not only tells you, uh, what all of your sources of happiness and unhappiness are, but also, uh, breaks down all of your city's, uh, luxuries and, it is very easy to just quickly glance at this list of cities and see which cities have luxuries that are not being improved currently. So you can, uh, by looking at happiness, have an immediate solution presented to you uh, to just go and hunt down and uh, grab uh, some quick happiness. Um, and also that has the city-states and what luxuries they could give you uh, and uh, and happiness. Just based on, uh, there, there are a lot of other things where, uh, normally you'd have to click two or three times to maneuver through menus that, uh, are either just a button, an immediate button on the screen, or presented in a way that, uh, are a lot simpler. Anyways, uh, I would recommend that, and I'm going to continue enjoying Civ 5. Alright, Paul, have you played any video games, or did you already go? Oh, okay, okay good. That's everybody then, right? good. And Reggie, Fisa May uh, says something about Canada. <laughs> yep, sure likes his pancakes. Hey, get me Canada on the phone. Yep. All right, let's uh, let's move on to uh, the inter inter interview section of this pod Tron. All right, so um, for, first of all, do you do you do you, Dave want to sort of tell the listeners about? who you are, what you've done, before we, we ask you a few okay, questions. Okay, yeah, I can give a little bit of background. Uh, um, yeah. So I could give one, but I think that you may be more qualified. I mean, I don't know how far back or how long, but uh, okay, I, I graduated from MIT uh, in business and math. Uh, I'm a video game designer and tabletop game designer, uh, as well as an author. I wrote the book Playing to Win, which is about competitive gaming, how to how to win in game tournaments. I was the lead designer of Street Fighter HD Remix and Puzzle Fighter HD Remix. Those are both uh, video games, of course. And after that, I started working on tabletop games at my own company, Serlin Games. I've released uh, several so far, Yomi, Puzzle Strike, Flash Duel, and Pendante. I'm working on a new uh, card game called Codex. I've been working on that for about 10 years now, and it's kind of my reimagining of customizable card games, like that genre done totally different and backwards. So that's my latest project. Uh, I also recently released the Chess 2 on Steam. <laughs> yeah, I actually had a question for you about that sure. in the interview, so I'm glad, glad that you mentioned it. All right, well... Um, so while I was I was prepping, I went and I, I listened to some some YouTube videos that you had talked about and, and read some forum posts, so I could sort of know what I should be asking mm-hmm. about ahead of time. But the, the the first thing that I wanted to to ask about was that you've you've written a lot about sort of how you personally have derived a, a great personal benefit from mm-hmm. competition, and that 
there you think you, you see that there's sort of this rise of uneven playing fields in games do you think that's sort of damaging as well if you could talk about the benefits that you feel that you've received from competition and some of the specifics as to why uneven playing fields are i guess in quotes bad for i don't know the the gaming market or the gaming design space right yeah so uh growing up playing a lot of competitive games that's it's like a whole other world <laughs> i mean it feel it feels like an alternate mm-hmm. universe or something where all the all the rules are different and the hierarchy is different like what matters in that world is if you're good at the game uh and if you're one of the best at whatever game it is you're talking about then there's a lot of like a uh, social reinforcement you know like you're kind of head of the pack and hierarchy and that sort of thing. People like look up to you. They want to beat you. They hate you. They like you. There's there's just a lot going on. But but the thing that the thing about it all is that there's a, there's a lot of lessons that are just ingrained. Like there, no one ever says them, but you can't help but learn them. And it has to do with a meritocracy. You get to like basically exit the real world for a little bit and enter a meritocracy and live in that. Like, nobody cares what your religion is or something, or nobody cares what color your skin is. Uh, in the world of fighting games, uh, it's very multicultural. Uh, it, it, every race you can think of uh, is represented. I know that's not true in some other competitive games where they're a little more homogenous, but at least where I, the world I was from, um, it, it, that that's like a buffer against racism right there. You know, when you when you're Growing up in a in a situation where only skills matter, it just doesn't even occur to you to discriminate based on stupid things that don't matter. Uh, so I I got a lot out of um, out of growing up in an environment where to succeed you should actually achieve, you you should actually get better uh, self improvement. It's not about talking talking it up or faking it or something you you can't fake it when it comes to uh, to winning uh, so th- those are the things that i uh, i found value in and a, an opposite example would be uh i was playing world of warcraft uh, one time uh, well i mean i played it for a few years actually i played it for 2 years before it came out uh, and then the, the a year afterwards, uh, okay. but somewhere in there, some battlegrounds thing, and I was going to join some guy's team or whatever. And he told me that I couldn't join because I hadn't played enough or something. And I was like, "Oh my god, do you even know who you're talking to? Like, <laughs> like that's not a metric that matters. What matters is how good I am or how bad I am, not how many hours I have played. Uh, but that." concept that time equals entitlement was so rampant in World of Warcraft. It, it permeates the whole culture. Uh, th- that's what they grow up learning, is that if you spend time, you deserve to be better, regardless that's of... That's definitely still the case. Yeah, yeah, that, that's still yeah. the case, and that it, it, like, graded on me, and then just became sickening. Like, I just, I couldn't even be in that environment anymore. It was so upsetting, uh, totally alien to anything in the fighting game culture, where it's, it's completely opposite. It's like time, no one gives about your time. Like, it only matters how good you are. 
And some people are able to, to achieve great things in a short amount of time. Some people take a very long time. And either way, we only care about the results. So this uneven playfield stuff uh, really flies in the face of that. And, uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't even know how to explain. It just... It just does. <laughs> I mean, if you wanted to, if you want to play chess, and someone told you uh, you can't actually play the real chess, you've got to play this like gimped version that doesn't have any rooks or knights for a hundred hours. It's it's just so against what competition is about uh, about providing a an even play field for everyone everyone to be the you know the, have the same material advantage, uh, and only your only your skill matters, not time spent. Time spent should count for nothing. Uh, so, so that's so one problem is forced grinds like League of Legends, uh, where you want to play the whole game. You're like, let me play Street Fighter, let me play chess, let me play the real League of Legends, but you actually can't. They they won't allow you. They won't sell it to you. You have to do a forced 100 plus hours thing uh, to get there. And so, to me, that's a, that's an auto reject. It's like I don't need to play one minute of that. I reject it on principle and will not participate in it. And do not think anyone who cares about competition should ever participate in a system like that. It's insulting to competition, in my opinion. Uh, the other thing that gets in the way is this, is collectible barriers, like uh, rares and and, uh, and random packs and uh, collectible card games. So that by the very nature of that it's it's creating an uneven play field that some people would have more powerful cards than others and if the developers of such a game actually cared about people being on e- even footing with each other then that system wouldn't exist it's totally in conflict with it you would you would do the opposite you want to make sure that everyone has access to everything uh which is like how street fighter works and chess works and starcraft and counter strike uh and other legitimate competitive games where you are supposed to have full access to everything, uh, that there is no possible way to have uh, a weak version of a character versus a, a full-powered one. It's, it doesn't exist in the system. Uh, so I don't like either of those two things in competitive games. It's, I, I think there's maybe a line, though, would you, would you say, I don't know, maybe not, for at least for, like, collectible card games, for a physical card game versus, a, like, a digital one, because with a physical card game, people just, you know, they can, you can print out a copy of any card that you want from the Internet, and as long as your f- friends are oh, okay with that, then you just do have all the cards. Magic tournaments work, so, no, I would... Right, that's right. not how it's... At, at the very least, you can... Yeah, right, um, right. You can but, at least purchase that is like, get individual cards that you need. Like, the, like the, if you need a card, it's very well within your grasp. Uh, neither of those are... Both of those arguments are exactly 0% compelling to me. The, 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 the problem with the first argument is that uh, it's like using an illegal thing. I mean, it's like copyrighted stuff. You're not supposed to be doing that. So that is not an excuse. Like They, they should have a legal system that allows you to play their game in a reasonable, non-offensive way. The problem with right. the uh, second... What was the second? Oh, yeah, that you can, get, you can buy singles, right? Uh, that you can buy singles... Uh, there's a couple issues there. One, uh, that that doesn't like it doesn't really solve the original complaint. Like the, there still is this concept of more powerful stuff versus weak stuff. There still is like the developer trying to stop you, you know, by having this rarity system at all. And uh, also, uh, 
I, I just I, I can't count the secondary market. I mean, it's yeah, so you're just looking at sort of the product as it is sold. Yeah, yeah, as as it is sold. Uh, here, here's let's say hypothetically that uh, Magic the Gathering said, "Here's our new our new set that's coming out this year." And we've divided it up into ten decks or something. You don't have to play those ten decks. You could mix it up and do whatever you want. Uh, but but here's like ten sample decks uh, that cover all the cards. And each deck costs $300 or something. It's just like a really high, like $500 maybe. Now, you might object to that, and you might say, that's too much money, right? <laughs> but I certainly would. Sure, sure. I don't play magic. I mean, that would be a, that would be a reasonable objection. Uh, someone else might say, actually, I'm fine with it, and I get that much fun out of it, and I think that the game is that well-designed that I'm willing to pay for it. And I think both of you would have a reasonable stance, right? I mean, right. I, I, I'm not really upset over either. If someone thinks it's too expensive, you know, that's fine, don't buy it. But that isn't the situation that we really live in. Uh, there's this obfuscated thing where it actually does cost that much, but there's this whole collectible barrier to kind of trick people and make the game perceived as cheap. Uh, and it's really, it's really troubling because the, the cost of doing it that way is creating this uneven play field of, uh, I can't just play any deck I want. I mean, right. right. It, so do you see a lin- delineation between that sort of game and something like what Fantasy Flight Games does a lot with their living card games where mm-hmm. they, they have their game and then like every, I don't know, I don't know if it's actually every three months, but let's say every three months, they just put out an entire new set, and you just buy the box, and then you're expected to be able to play with all of those cards. And they right. do sell you the entire set in the box, but they just constantly keep releasing new updates for it. Right. I have a, a, a really small objection to that. Way, way less. So the, the it's it's pretty good. I mean, because if you play that game, you can just directly get whatever you want, and everybody has it. So that's that's good. Uh, the the only kind of footnote I want to put in there is. Let's say you were in charge of one of those games, and then someone someone said, how many cards should this game have? Like, what's the optimal number of cards? Uh, maybe one set of cards is like 300, uh, and then each expand, and you're like, well, we could do more than that. I mean, we want to have a, uh, an expansion of 100 cards and another one. Uh, 300 wouldn't be enough. Okay, fine. But what is enough? Like, at some point, it stops being optimal. Like, they're, at some point, they're just printing them for the sake of printing them to make money. And I mm-hmm. feel like in the case of Fantasy Flight, I could be wrong. I don't have a strong stance on this. But I feel like the number of cards they make in the living card games is quite a bit higher than how many should really be in those games. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't play, like, Netrunner or Cthulhu or whatever they, they put out. But I know that that's a, just their business practice. So that, that bothers me a little bit, but not very much. I could be totally wrong about it. Um, I'm not upset about that method of selling, really. Huh. Because what, what, what you were saying also made me think about, because you talked about Street Fighter a lot, like fighting games that have DLC characters. Mm-hmm. And I guess... I guess because those characters are technically for sale for everybody, that's not that wouldn't fall into your, I guess, bad zone. Yeah, I, I right. Uh, so I would state it this way: that a, a a fair or even play field game or something allows every player immediate and non-random access to gameplay elements that they're willing to pay for. So, like, I'm not huh. like, what if someone said, "Well, 
the problem with Street Fighter is it costs more than zero dollars. Well, no, right. I mean you got to pay it and you get the game, whatever. So it's not really that much different to say, okay, it cost it costs sixty dollars and there's two DLC characters that each cost right. five more. I mean, you know that getting into it that it's five more. It's like not really that hidden. It's, right. It's a it's a little. I mean, it's like slightly iffy. Like you you wish that everybody would have access to all of them, but it's pretty low barrier. It's not random. It's not really tricky. Right. It's not tricky, really. Like, I don't I don't know. Mm-hmm. So I guess, like, character unlocks where the characters are all there, but you just have to do something to unlock them would be sort of the same? Or I guess maybe it depends on how difficult those character unlocks are. Well, that takes more than zero seconds, so... Right, but... <laughs> yeah. I remember I, yeah. I bought Soul Calibur... Was it five? I think. Uh, well, I've played all the Soul Calibers, but I'm trying to remember which particular one this was. Anyway, uh, my my first thought was, I'm going to deduct one point out of ten of my rating of this game if I cannot instantly select Cervantes because that is the character I want to play, and it's totally crazy that I just bought this game. I want to sit down with my friend and play my character who I've played for ten years, and if I can't, then that's just garbage. <laughs> yeah. And I think that some of it, like especially with like the Super Smash Brothers games, like the unlocking and reveal of characters is part of the marketing of that game. Well, it's so. really incompatible with the competitive scene. Yeah, I mean, I think the I think the way to do that is so. Okay, here's the thing: I think we'll all agree with some people love unlocks. Yep, they yeah, super sure. do. Yep, and, and I'm not saying they don't. <laughs> okay, here's an no. here, and here's another statement is. Competitive players really hate characters to be locked. Okay, I can, I can buy that. Those are both true. So I think a good way to address that conflict is to have tons of unlocks, but just not have them be characters. Or if you really, really need them to be characters, then give give some code or something that that at least a tournament organizer can use. It's, it's like a crazy yeah, no, It's a huge pain to go that. over to a friend's house. I've seen that in one to like, Yeah. Like, it's it's a huge... Like, if you go over to your friend's house and they, did, they didn't have the memory card for Super Smash Brothers, you just start out with a tenth of the yeah. characters, and it's super frustrating. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> but you can uh, transfer your save file to your Wiimote and take your Wiimote to your friend's place. Uh, Super Smash Brothers <laughs> saves can't be, can't be transferred yeah, uh, you actually, on the way. You actually can't do that. They've, yeah. they've, locked, they've locked them. All right, so I guess going going back to chess because I did have a question about chess too. Actually, go ahead, yeah. Um, so uh, when I watched a video where you talked about sort of what your design goals were for chess two, I guess from a while ago, mm-hmm. and you said that sort of when you were developing chess two, one of your major goals was to eliminate draws, <laughs> and I, I presume that was because they're sort of competitively dissatisfying, and that you were also looking to reduce them sort of memorization of sequences that is pervasive in high-level competitive chess that you you need to have them memorized in order to compete. And I wanted to sort of push on those ideas a bit and, and hear what you had to say, because what sort of my thinking about draws was that a draw is a mechanic that allows, a, at least in chess, that allows a player who is losing a game or on the ropes to salvage in some way the game for themselves and that sort of the the memorization of sequences and sort of the familiarity is similar to the, a metagame in other in other games. I guess it kind of is. 
and sort of that familiarity is what is a delineator of chess skill and allows for a stratification of players into higher and lower skill levels. So I wanted to sort of hear, I, w- I wanted to sort of talk about those and sort of expand because I was curious about more than just, I guess, the, the minute and a half or two minutes that your video gave. Yeah, like I, I kind of disagree with what you're saying there, but... but no, you're, I mean, I, I hope you do. I like to hear opinions. But I, well, let me put it this way, though. It's, it's okay. not so much... I, when I say I disagree, I, I don't really think it's not like oh you said a wrong thing. Like I'm not right really saying mm-hmm. that. It's more like there's more to the story. There there's things that were left out, and that's the problem. Uh, okay. So yeah, let me give you a, maybe more full background. Uh, so start with the draws thing. I think that's the mm-hmm. I think it's the easier one to think about. Uh, there there's some graph maybe someone could look up that shows the percentage of draws amongst grandmasters in chess. Uh, over the years, like across mm-hmm. time, to show that it's right. increasing more and more, and that it's um, above sixty-two percent now. Right. So that's this. So you you said a, a re, you said something in favor of draws, but let's. I'm not disagreeing with that. Let's just set that aside for a second and just think mm-hmm. about a game that has sixty-two percent draws. That's crazy. That's like it's borderline unplayable. Like if you made a new. A new competitive game came out that took an hour to play and had 62% draws amongst experts. Like what? It would just be a total failure. It would be like a laughing stock. Like that's not how you make a competitive game. It's really unsatisfying. It's almost infeasible to run tournaments for because they're going to take so long. You're going to need so many games. You would never want that property or put that in there on purpose. Okay, but but you did make a good point about the positive property of the draw. So let's go over that now. Uh, chess has a slippery slope, right? That, that means uh, when you lose a piece, you're kind of behind in two ways. Like, you're getting closer and closer to being checkmated, but you're also losing your ability to fight back, right? So right. when you start to lose a few pieces, it can be more and more hopeless. And if you... Your point is, if you did not have draws, uh, that's kind of... It's like slippery slopes just totally dominates. Like, you can't really come back. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and am I, am I characterizing this correctly? And so that, that's... Yeah, basically, it allows you to salvage the game, so it's not... At least it's not a loss for you, even yeah. if it's not a win. I agree. That's totally right. So here's the problem. If, if, the, if the problem we're facing is that uh, a game has slippery slope, and it's kind of just lame if you get a little bit ahead, and you can always cash that into a win, if that's the problem we're trying to solve a really terrible way to solve it is to add a mechanism that results in 62% draw rates. That problem should be solved in a different way, a way that does not have draws. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, if if you just took out the draws and it was super slippery slope, that's maybe even worse. (laughs) Or, I don't know, maybe better, but still bad. Uh, My solution is the midline invasion rule and... That right. where the king, if the king crosses the midline, then you win. Uh, that stops this slippery slope stuff, or puts a limit. Like if you get slippery sloped like a little bit, like like to a certain point, you don't even have to play out the rest of the game because it's just over. It just ends. You're saved from from the, this horrible long duck thing, but it, a lame duck situation where you can't win. But it also gives you a comeback chance. Uh, it's easier to come back in a game where you can win by checkmate or a midline invasion, 
than it is to come back in a game where you can only win by checkmate. It's like it's very hard to win by checkmate when you're down on a lot of pieces. But uh, when you have the second option of midline invasion or checkmate, uh, comebacks are more possible. So it's a pretty good overall solution to um, have comebacks be possible and yet eliminate draws. There, There's almost like 0% draws in chess 2. The, the only way you can draw is really obscure stuff like uh, if you do um, 50 move repetition or whatever. Uh, yeah, or like two queens locking the kings into the back row or something I think might work. Yeah, uh, And those are the only pieces other than kings. A cer- yeah, a certain number of moves where no progress. No pieces yeah, no, yeah, no yeah. Move pieces get taken or no pawns move forward. But, but th- these don't really come up in normal games. Like they're they don't come up in normal chess a lot either. <laughs> yeah, no, they don't. Right, they don't come up in normal chess a lot either, uh, and they come even less here when they're. It's like in some weirdo case where that could happen in normal chess. It's pretty hard to imagine happening when like why doesn't someone's king just cross the line? Like how is that not happening? <laughs> so so that's that's the end of my story about draws. Is uh, no draws is good and solving the slippery slope thing a different way is good. Um, but should I? Did you want more on that, or did you want to talk about the mem- no, memorization thing? No, I was just thinking, like, some... No, yeah, I mean, we're, 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 we're crunched for time, so keep going. Okay, so the other the other point was, was memorization. So I, I believe your uh, statement was that uh, there really isn't a problem in the first place because this is a skill-testing factor, and it, it helps separate the good players from the bad players. Is that... Yeah, I don't, I'm not saying... I, I don't know if I would have put it as strongly as this isn't a problem, but I sort of... My, you know, isn't isn't this the metagame of chess that you have to keep up with in order to be good at chess? And sort of this is what allows you to create the stratification of players into ranks, basically. Uh, what, is, because how, what does metagame mean to you in, in that sentence? Sort of the game, the the game that is being played over the game. So a person who has memorized a million chess openings versus the person who hasn't. Uh, they may both be playing chess, but they are playing two completely different games. And so, what was the metagame in that example? So the metagame was so the metagame is the game is the memorization of the sequences, allowing the player who has memorized those sequences to mm-hmm. pl- effortlessly counter without actually thinking about it because they've already memorized what they're supposed to do. I see. I, against the person. I think it's maybe not a, not a good word to describe that or something. Yeah, maybe, like maybe. You, it, it might not be the best word. It's a, often that, that word is used to mean um, like what uh, what character in a fighting game tournament is popular today, what deck in a Magic the Gathering tournament is popular today. And if you, yeah, that's, if you were, it definitely is used that way. So if you were aware, yeah, if you were aware of, of that, then you might pick uh, some other character or deck that was really good against the the popular one, and that was like a clever metagame choice. So that, that would be like a kind of a normal way uh, of using that word. But there's a there's like a big difference why I'm saying that it's not so applicable here. Um, okay. So ch- chess is a perfect information game. Um, so there's mm-hmm. like you don't have a hand of cards or any anything hidden, and every time you make a move, you have a complete knowledge of the whole game state. That's, that's what that means. And in a perfect information game, a turn-based perfect information game, uh, there is a single solution to it. I mean, there is some best way to play chess. Now, we don't know what that is. 
It hasn't, right. it hasn't been solved. Uh, but there is theoretically one. Other other games have been solved, like uh, Checkers is... Yeah, Tic-Tac-Toe. Yeah, Tic-Tac-Toe. Yeah. Checkers was only solved a few years ago. Uh, tic- that was a big deal. So uh, I'm, I'm not saying that, like, chess is um, totally lacking in strategy because you just played a certain way. I'm not saying that because no one knows. But someday it will be. And today we are a lot closer to that than we were... 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And as we get closer to it, more pockets of the game become solved. More, And by solved, like, no strategy anymore amongst experts. Uh, certain end games, like if I've got a rook and a bishop and, you know, you've got whatever particular two pieces, like there's just a, there's a solution to that. There's a known thing that you should have studied and looked it up and there's no point in even playing it out. That That's mm-hmm. one little molecule of the game. That, that's solved. And uh, so the problem here is that as we march closer and closer to fully solving it, there's just more and more little molecules that don't involve any decisions in the expert versus expert game. The, so the burden of that memorization is just getting higher and higher. And, and players like, uh, like Capablanca, who's the grandmaster of the past, or Bobby Fischer, uh, complained about this too. And I really empathize with their complaint. What they're saying is that when they grow up playing chess, they love the game. It's it's terrific, and they do it all the time. It's a wonderful hobby. And what they love about it is improv, is, is like being in a certain situation and having to be smart about what should you do and thinking on your feet and using some intuition they've built up about what would be good or bad. That's like their happiest time. And as they got better and better at the game, that's still there, but more and more of their experience is, is intruded upon by book openings and memorized endings. Uh, so they, they were just frustrated that there wasn't more uh, more improv, more think on your feet. And so that's what I'm trying to address. Uh, Bobby Fischer addressed that himself with something called Fischer Random Chess or Chess 960. Have you heard of that by chance? I have not. It's, it's very simple, actually. You just take a regular chess set, and uh, before you start, you randomize the back row, uh, of, he, he has a, a certain procedure that helps you do it, so it's not too hard. So you just randomize the back row, and the only caveat is that uh, the king still has to be between the two uh, rooks, so that it's possible to castle. Okay. But as long as you meet that, it's just random, then you mirror it on the other side, and there's 960 ways that you can do that. So instead of one single set of opening books, there's 900 60 opening books, and that's enough that nobody knows what to do anymore, and it makes the game fresh, and so he liked it. Now, that's solvable, too. It's just, it's just 960 times harder, but um, so that that's fine, and if I think it's a pretty good game. Like, I I, I endorse that. Uh, I tried to solve it a, a different way, but but he and I are, even though we had maybe different approaches, we had the same... Right. You are testing the same design. Yeah, yeah. We're trying to solve the same underlying thing one way or another. Yeah, I think I think the chess variant I played the most of was stealth chess, which I don't know if you're familiar of uh, or familiar with. No, I don't think I know that. But, uh, How does that work? It's it's not. I I would not say it's a fantastic game, but I thought it was interesting to play. So you basically you have your chess pieces, but they're on stratego pieces, so your opponent can't see. You can arrange them how you want. Uh, yes, I, I am. So I am familiar with that. I think it it okay. sounds interesting, but I haven't really seen it played. Yeah, there. I mean, there are some flaws because what do you do? Like the game is just over if your opponent takes the king. <laughs> so right. because they can't tell that they're taking the king, so there's no check. 
but it means that you really have to build a defense around the king in a different way than you normally would to protect it from all directions and all times. It's it's definitely interesting, but I I don't know if it's a fantastically implemented game. (laughs) Okay. Um, I think that the instructions that came in the box for that when I was younger and owned it also made you randomize the pieces for yourself, like you just shuffled them on the board so you didn't get to make strategic decisions about placement. But uh, that, of course, is easy to ignore. So, I guess, when when you were talking about even fields and even playing fields, and uh, also how you really liked the 1v1 nature of chess and Street Fighter in this video that I was watching, mm-hmm. I was wondering... How how far does that go, that sort of level playing field, whereas, like, somebody who is unable to play Street Fighter because they're, they're not physically capable, they're, they have some sort of disability, yeah. is maybe more able to play chess because it is not based on Twitch reflexes. Right, that's true, yeah. So, I was, I just, how, when, you, when you're saying you want to play an even playing field in games, sort of how... How far do you take that? Do you, when you're making a game, especially, do you strive to make a game that is playable by everybody if they're blind or if they sort of don't have the ability to respond quickly, or is it more as long as the game within itself is even, then maybe this game is not actually for everybody? Yeah, I think I think it's an excellent question. Actually, that's one of the best questions I've been asked in a while. So, congratulations on that. But my my, my answer is. Um, uh, let's take Street Fighter as an example, since you said you just gave that. Uh, a lot of people can't play it because it has very high dexterity requirements. So imagine that we made it a little bit easier to play, okay? Mm-hmm. And then we made it a little bit easier and a little bit easier, and we kind of kept on this path. Now, at some point, we're going to make it into, like, a turn-based game, <laughs> right? If we, if we just go right. on that path, right. path forever. That's how, that's how that works. A- and if we did that, it wouldn't really be the same thing anymore. I mean, we, we've, we would have transformed it into some other thing. Uh, now, it's worth noting that I did that. That's what Yomi, the card game, is. Yomi, my Yomi card game is an attempt to take the kinds of things that I experienced in a fighting game and make them in a card game form so that anyone, even without people without dexterity, can appreciate it. So, that's fine, but I, and I like it, and I made that game, you know, I'm proud of it, but I don't, claim that you should if you like Street Fighter or something you should stop playing it and only play Yomi um, the, the distinction that I think is important here is when, when we started that process uh, my thought experiment of let's make it a little easier a little easier uh, there's, this, there's a little bit of that knob we can turn where we did not transformationally change the game like we all, we just made a slightly easier Street Fighter, and it's everything that's good about it is still good. And there's there comes a point where we break that, and we've it's just like not the same experience anymore. Uh, I, I think where that in Street Fighter in particular that has to do with reaction times, like when you jump over a fireball or something, it, the the game is designed in such a way as like the 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 human reaction time to to jump. Uh, over a fireball is tuned at just the edge of what is what you can react to and what you can't. Like if it was really really slow, you could just always react to it every time, but you can't. There's some prediction is necessary because of the game speed. So if you make the game speed really slow, you've just created a completely different experience. When I was 
in charge of Street Fighter HD Remix, my goal was to turn that knob as far to the easy side as, as we really could with the tools we had, which were very limited, without changing the essence of the game. So I removed a lot of difficult dexterity things that were separate from strategy. So Zangief's pile drive motion, where you do a 360 on the joystick, um, mm-hmm. I made that a simpler motion so that more people could do it. And there was a mistaken impression that that made Zangief better. It it didn't. Uh, the the best Zangief players in the world can do that move 100% of the time in either version of the game. They don't care. But more novice players can now actually play Zangief and, and participate in the strategy of that character, whereas they couldn't before because they just didn't have the execution. Actually, I have to thank you for that one because I'm awful at the 360. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I kind of wonder about, like, could... If we started over and didn't, if we didn't have Street Fighter, but if we had a new game and new tools, like, how much easier could we make it and still have it be the same kind of ex- fighting game experience? I don't know, but it's an interesting question. Are you familiar it, with Dive Kick? Yeah, I, I am. I have I'm not played Dive Kick because uh, it, it does not exist on any platform that I own right now. <laughs> Fair enough. I was just thinking about it while you were talking about this. I, I, I know Keats, though, the, the yeah. designer, yeah. Oh, cool. I was thinking yeah. that, that might be the easiest possible fighting game uh, could actually get while being, like, have the semblance of being competitive. Yeah, Dive Kick, it, it looks like a great thing, but it, I'm putting that in the category of it's it's been transformed to be not really the same thing anymore. Like, uh, maybe, in the, do, do you know uh, Persona 4 Arena, by chance? I've heard of it. I mean, I've not. I've, I've never played it, but I'm familiar with what the game is. They clearly thought about this exact question, uh, and they have a thing where if you mash on the jab button, it does an auto combo of four hits. That's like a pretty solid combo, and it's tuned to be worse than what you'd do if you were super good at the game, but way, way, way better than what you'd do if you suck at the game. So it means that any terrible player who starts playing that. Uh, is closer to being able to do real damage in a combo than in other games. And I I think that's probably a good idea. Uh, they also made dragon punch moves, like reversals. Uh, just press two buttons with no joystick motion. They try to make it as easy as possible. I think that creates some problems, but I have to admit, it's very accessible. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I know there's a new one of those coming out, so... Oh, it, it, it'll be is there? I, yeah, I think they've they've announced a sequel. I don't know when it's uh when it's going to be coming, but I know that there is a second Persona 4 fighting game on the way, which yeah, I guess that means that the first one was successful. So Guilty Gear, the, the game I told you I bought a PlayStation 4 for, uh, mm-hmm. is it's also thinking about this and I'm I'm really impressed with their mindset um you probably don't know Guilty Gear, I'm guessing. I do. It's um oh, do? I mean, okay. I've never played it, but I I know it's got a Bridget in it. Uh, so yeah, it does. A, that's that's what I know. The new one doesn't have Bridget actually. It has what? yeah, because they're start they're starting over from scratch, and so they're with fewer characters, and then they'll add more over time. But um, there's some slightly difficult stuff in that that they took out uh, in kind of weird ways. Like there's something called an FRC. That's where you false Roman cancel. Uh, it's where you do a move, and then if you press three buttons at a certain point in that move, it'll cancel the move. Uh, and that lets you do a whole bunch of pressure strings and interesting things. But it's really timing dependent. It's like within 
three frames or something, three sixtieths of a second. They got rid of that entire thing uh, and came up with a whole new canceling system that is intentionally much easier to do and doesn't involve things that come down to the frame <laughs> anymore. So, so good on them. Uh, another quick example is that uh, there's something called a Roman cancel in that game, not the false kind, but the regular kind. Uh-huh. You cancel your move, and then you then you continue your combo. Uh, it's not really that hard. Yeah, so you so you press three buttons to cancel your move, and then you do a combo. And I thought that was uh, pretty easy, like not really a problem to solve. But they went a little further with it, and they said, "How about if when you press the three buttons to cancel your move, time starts slowing down? So yeah, you, you do a combo right then, but we'll give you a little bit more time to do it." than you normally would. The experts were doing a combo there anyway, uh, but now even newer players are able to do what they're supposed to do. So they're looking out for beginners. They're trying to put more emphasis on the decisions and the strategy and less on how hard it is to do everything. All right, so it is it has reached the end of our uh, the end of our time, but uh, I want to say thank you to to our guest here, to our, to Dave here for uh, coming and talking about all of this uh, sort of really, really widely varied subjects uh, during especially this last segment. So thank you uh, thank you for coming on and talking to us. Great. Thanks for having me, guys. It was a lot of fun. Um, if people wanted to find your stuff on the Internet, where would they do that? Well, they can find my articles on game design at sirlin.net, S-I-R-L-I-N.net. Uh, they could play my games online at fantasystrike.com. And they can get the tabletop versions, like the physical, real-life versions of my games, at SerlinGames.com. Yeah, or at fine game stores, I'm sure. Yeah, at, at fine game stores near you. If you really want to buy them at fine game stores near you, you can go to GameStoreLocator.com, and it'll tell you game stores anywhere in the world that carry my games. Cool. If people wanted to find us, uh, Paul, where would they where would they find us? Uh, you can find us on our website, redpagespodcast.com, or our Facebook page, Facebook slash redpagespodcast, uh, Twitter, uh, email, theredpagespodcast at gmail.com, and subreddit. Yep. All right. Yeah. Well, I guess that's that's it for uh, for this week. So, I guess from, from all of us here at the Red Pages office, and from... Uh, the satellite office in Japan, where Gord is. Uh, I've been Justin. I've been Gord. And I'm Paul. And, uh, and I'm David. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and this has been uh, another episode of Red Pages Podcast. Okay, so, so did that go well? Yeah, I, I think, think that or? went well. Um, okay, I had great. a lot of fun. I hope that you uh, were not put off by us. Uh, but I could understand <laughs> if you were, because I would be. <laughs> <laughs> because 